0: Well, good evening, and um, it's good to be back. Um, I'm grateful to uh, the many of you who uh, said that um, my uh, stand-in last week was okay, <laughs> and uh, I'm grateful to uh, Dr. Ferguson for um, the superb job uh, that he did last week. I was actually listening. Um, and I did hear uh, what he had to say. Now that uh, particular lecture last week, uh, lecture six, uh, brought uh, one segment uh, to a close and uh, we segue now for the rest of uh, this fall to uh, another branch of theology and that is um, the doctrine of God um, For a long time, it has been referred to in uh, systematic theology as uh, theology proper, Uh, but we'll be thinking about God, uh, and we'll be thinking about uh, who God is, and what God is like, uh, and uh, the attributes uh, of God, uh, which will take us up to uh, the end of November, the beginning, perhaps the first week of December. These uh, lectures, contrary to what many of you think, uh, are actually being prepared as I speak. And uh, I've changed my mind a little bit on uh, the trajectory for the next few weeks. Um, So you can ignore what's on this folder. If you've picked up this folder, this is not uh, now accurate anymore. Uh, And uh, we'll put the accurate uh, schedule for the rest of the fall and the topics. Uh, They'll go online uh, probably first thing in the morning uh, and do consult uh, the various uh, websites the church website and uh, the one that's printed uh, below the title Center Point School of Theology there's a website there too uh, that you can go to and if you want to ask um, any questions if you asked any questions of last week's uh, lecture I will send those of course to my OK substitute for, uh, for last week now uh, we, we're going to begin uh, this evening uh, thinking about God and uh, before, we, uh, before we can look at the various attributes of God and we'll be looking at God's holiness and God's righteousness, God's knowledge uh, and uh, um, s- similar uh, characteristics of God, uh, we need to think together about how uh, we ought to think about God, uh, and um, because of uh, the world in which we live, because of uh, various uh, philosophical positions, and particularly in two thousand and twelve in uh, late modernity, as uh, some refer to it or post modernity um, the, the very the very way that uh, we know what we know about God. God conveying himself, revealing himself, disclosing himself, uh, and committing that disclosure to finite human uh, words, words that are capable of more than one meaning, has given rise to the view that uh, that, that, that it is not possible for God to... Accurately and truly disclose himself using the vehicle of human words. Uh, So, we've got some uh, serious thinking to do uh, for a few minutes tonight, and uh, so put your thinking caps uh, on. And uh, now that you've eaten your food, uh, allow that to digest a little and give you some energy to think through some some fairly technical things before we can get to the place that we all want to get to. Uh, So we begin with the possibility of true knowledge of God and a distinction uh, that actually goes back to the medieval uh, period, uh, a distinction that's been around for uh, almost a thousand years uh, between archetypal and ectypal knowledge. Uh, It's a distinction that's worth keeping Uh, And uh, I've given you some definitions. Uh, Archetypal knowledge uh, refers to how God uh, knows himself perfectly and in a manner that we cannot. Uh, God's knowledge is different from our knowledge. Our knowledge is discursive. Uh, Our knowledge is limited. Uh, God's knowledge is omniscient. God knows everything. He knows everything all at once. Uh, God doesn't have uh, aha moments. Uh, There are not uh, factors uh, that come to light that alter God's knowledge of himself. Uh, Neither the problem of sin nor the problem of of, of finitude uh, affect the way God knows. So when God knows something, he knows it in a different way. Way to the way that we know something. Ectypal knowledge is the opposite of that. Ectypal knowledge refers to uh, what we know about God and perhaps more importantly, the way we know, the manner we know uh, about God. Um, some theologians, uh, John Calvin, for example, in the 16th century, said um, that God necessarily has to accommodate. Himself to our finitude. Uh, This isn't just a problem of sin; uh, it's a problem of the fact that we are creatures, that we are are finite beings, and and the the knowledge that God conveys to us has to be accommodated to fit our uh, human uh, frailty. We are wholly dependent for our knowledge of God upon His self-disclosure. Uh, his revealing of himself to us. Now, having said that, what we know about God we know truly, but what we know about God we know in an ectypal fashion. We know it in an accommodated fashion. Uh, we know it in a human way of knowing rather than in a divine uh, way of knowing. Well, that distinction between archetypal and ectypal shouldn't keep you awake at night, um, but it is a distinction, I think, that's worth keeping. God knows things in a way uh, that we do not, and our way of knowing is always a human way of knowing, and that should keep us humble uh, in what we know uh, about God. Ultimately, uh, this will lead us uh, right at the very end, uh, probably the first week of December, to consider Something like uh, our knowledge of God is is limited, or uh, there is a God is incomprehensible, not that he cannot be understood at all, but that he cannot be understood fully. Uh, his ways are past finding out the secret things belong uh, unto the Lord our God now what 's the rationale? for knowing God and knowing him truly. How can a finite human being know the infinite eternal uh, all-wise God and know him truly? Uh, And and the rationale here, a five uh, or six point rationale for how, how is it that we know anything at all about God? Or how can God make himself known to us? And how can we be sure that what we know about God is true knowledge about God? Uh, and it begins with the consideration uh, of the fact that we as human beings are created after the image and likeness of God. We are image bearers of God. Uh, we we uh, th- this makes meaningful communication between God uh, and human beings possible. The the image of God in man, Genesis 1:26 and 27, is a fundamental, crucial uh, text uh, right at the very beginning of the Bible that says God. ...can communicate with man and man can communicate with God... ...and that communication is meaningful, true communication... ...because man is made, created in the image and after the likeness of God. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus and Jesus' incarnation. Our understanding of Jesus' incarnation is that the second person of the Trinity... "...took to himself human flesh and blood. He remained God, but in addition to being God, he was also a man." So that when Jesus spoke, there, there is only one He. Right? He, is, he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. We mustn't confuse the divine and human natures of Jesus. But there's only one He. So when Jesus speaks, whether he speaks in his divine nature or whether he speaks in his human nature... It is he who speaks the the second person of the Trinity speaks who is both divine and human so when Jesus speaks God speaks that's meaningful true communication that the words of Jesus are the words of the only true and living God you you want proof that God God can truly communicate with human beings, and that communication is meaningful communication, then look to Jesus, uh, the Incarnation. Uh, Thirdly, the doctrine of inspiration, where we've been for the last uh, four or five uh, weeks, that holy men of old wrote as they were born along by the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter says. All scripture is the product of the out breathing of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in the way of righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Bible's inspiration and as a corollary of that the inerrancy of scripture since the bible is god speaking and god cannot lie the bible therefore is an inerrant document of god's communication god communicates by inspiration and uh, in the in the scriptures therefore you have you have true meaningful communication from god then uh, the Spirit's illumination. Uh, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to illuminate, uh, to bring the meaning of Scripture to light, uh, which ensures um, that true knowledge of God gets through to every generation. Uh, and then uh, another uh, another issue by analogy. Uh, we adjust the definition of verbs and nouns and adjectives uh, applied in scripture to uh, to God. Um, human, uh, human language is necessarily finite human language is is necessarily limited. But when we apply these words to God, we adjust those words so that, uh, so that there, is a, there is a direct uh, correspondence, a one-to-one correspondence between uh, God speaking and our uh, understanding of what it is um, that God says. So that uh, uh, a consistent... Uh, body of uh, of true knowledge of God, true theology about God, um, derived from um, careful exposition of Scripture, uh, provides for us a tradition that uh, that is uh, that is uh, true and 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 trustworthy. So that's the that's the basis upon which we can argue for true knowledge of God uh, in human beings. Now, knowing God as God uh, reveals Himself, um, I'm, I'm not going to look uh, any, at any great length at this section. Um, this is a trajectory of where we are going to go uh, in the next uh, six or seven weeks. If you if you examine Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And pull out from Scripture everything that Scripture says about God. Uh, Everything that every characteristic, every attribute, um, pull all of that out and and put it into some kind of order. What is it it that you get as a result of it? And you get things like God is personal. Uh, Actually, He is three persons. And therefore, uh, God describes, uh, God is often described in scripture um, using personal language, using this uh, big word here, anthropomorphism. That's a good word to throw into a sentence or two Uh, in the coming uh, week. Let me tell you about anthropomorphism. Um, God speaks using... Um, human language. Uh, God uh, has eyes. God has ears. Uh, God has a nose. Uh, God has feet. Uh, God uh, repents in the King James uh, version, or uh, he um, he is sorry uh, that he has made man Genesis six seven, or he regrets that he made Saul king First uh, Samuel fifteen eleven. Uh, we understand these statements as God um, accommodating Himself to a human way of talking, to help. It's, it's like um, it's like baby talk. It's like God saying, "You can't possibly understand what I am truly like, so let me use um, human metaphors and human similes um, to describe what it is um, that I am uh, that I am like." Uh, God is unique. There is only one God. And and any suggestion of polytheism, any suggestion uh, that there is more than one God is outlawed in Scripture. Uh, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. uh, Isaiah 45, 5. Uh, God is triune. Uh, There's only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. Uh, The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but there is only one God. There is plurality within the oneness of God. Uh, More of that uh, in the spring uh, of next year. That's where we'll be camping out in uh, late January, early February. We'll talk about the doctrine of the Trinity Um, God is active, that is to say God is living. Uh, He is the I am, that I am uh, in the divine name revealed in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. Uh, And we are always in his hands. Uh, God is eternal, uh, if you think of time. God is outside of time. Uh, God doesn't exist in time. Uh, since Einstein, uh, we think of space and time as uh, intimately related to each other, uh, um, and uh, God creates uh, both space and time. Time is a product, a function of, uh, of space, of the cosmos, and God is outside of the cosmos, he is the creator. So God is outside of time. There's no sequence of time within uh, God. And therefore God cannot change. Uh, If you think of it in spatial categories, um, God is infinite. Uh, He is outside of space. Uh, He is free, therefore, from all the limitations of creation and of the created order. uh, And the processes of change and decay... Uh, and the second law of thermodynamics and whatever that characterize creation. Uh, God is incomprehensible. Uh, he is independent. He is unchanging. He is self-sustaining uh, the doctrine of aseity. All of these we will expound in the coming uh, weeks. And God, is, God manifests simplicity. Um, that's an old word. Uh, Coming from the Latin, uh, simplicitas, meaning single-minded. What it means is that God's whole being is involved in everything that he does. Uh, It's not as though a part of God is involved. When God does something, his entire being is involved in that action. Uh, God is sovereign. Uh, God is omnipotent. He has all power. God is omniscient. Omniscient, He knows everything and he knows everything all at once. God is omnipresent. Uh, he is everywhere. There isn't a location in the cosmos or the universe where God is not present. Uh, and similarly, God is wise. God is holy. God is righteous. Uh, God is good, loving, glorious. All of these are uh, attributes of God, ways of describing God, ways that God has revealed himself, disclosed himself in scripture, and we 're going to pull all of these apart and and uh, with a with a sort of a microscope we 're going to look at each of these aspects of god 's uh, characteristics god 's attributes uh, in the coming uh, weeks now um, uh, there are those who um, have argued that we can know God um, by our own processes of reasoning uh, simply by um, employing some kind of rationalistic arguments and uh, we need to say a little bit about that uh, the reality of God uh, philosophically considered and uh, Some of you may uh, tune into this more than others and some of you have a background perhaps in uh, philosophy and you've done a a course in philosophy or two, uh, maybe at college or university somewhere in the distant uh, past and maybe you come across uh, some of this. Now, uh, we're we're drawing from something that we said earlier, uh, actually in lecture number two, Uh, God speaks in creation. Uh, Paul in Romans 1 makes that abundantly clear. uh, That every human being on the planet that ever was and is and shall be is surrounded by and engulfed by um, the self-disclosure of God. Um, There is a knowledge of God that can be found in creation. Uh, The invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now that isn't saving knowledge. You can't be, you can't be saved, you can't learn redemption by looking at the moon. Uh, you can't see the gospel simply by listening to a bird sing. But you can, uh, and, and the fact that a bird sings and the fact that a bird exists is, is in itself Evidence of the existence of God. God is placarding His existence. He's bombarding us with this, with this radiation, uh, with this uh, revelation of Himself day by day. Now, the fact that men and women deny that is besides the point. They turn that revelation that God gives and they make an idol of it. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. So the reality of God or the awareness of God is universal uh, and agnostics who question the existence of God and atheists who deny the existence of God, uh, all of that is notwithstanding scripture insists that that the knowledge of God is there and that the agnostic and the atheist simply suppress it. Actually, um, God doesn't believe in atheists. (laughs) Now, there are classical um, arguments, so-called classical arguments, uh, for the existence of God. Uh, One thinks of the 12th century uh, theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, the famous five ways Uh, that uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, propounded. And uh, these, of course, have become uh, particularly important in uh, Roman Catholicism that have more or less canonized the theology of uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, And I want to look just very briefly, I I basically just want to mention uh, five uh, of these uh, so-called arguments for the existence of God, rational arguments uh, for the existence of God, Uh, One uh, is called the ontological argument uh, put forth uh, by Anselm of Canterbury. uh, And um, Anselm of uh, Canterbury uh, put it in this form. uh, Roughly, I'm I'm translating uh, something from from his book, uh, the Proslogion. Uh, Therefore, if that than which a greater um, cannot be conceived exists in the understanding alone, the very being than which nothing greater can be conceived, than which nothing greater can be thought, is. Now I have to say the ontological argument does absolutely nothing for me. Uh, It leaves me entirely cold. Uh, It has, however, been the stuff of philosophy. In fact, to this very day, uh, philosophers will still uh, take up aspects of of, uh, Anselm's ontological argument. Um, It has a a weakness uh, and a very fundamental weakness um, that uh, this argument uh, doesn't really get past um, uh, the, the issue of whether uh, Anselm is saying in in my mind I can conceive of something greater and that which no greater can be conceived is god well he's not the christian god for sure even even if it's a philosophical axiom and and then whether whether that Existence of the idea of God in the mind can translate into the into the reality of God in 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 in, in reality, as opposed to the thought life. Uh, whether whether it can cross over from the mind into reality is uh, is a, a very important uh, question, and uh, largely, um, Protestant Reformed Christians have. Have, have not given uh, the ontological argument uh, any, any great uh, credence. Uh, the cosmological argument is an argument that is a little easier to understand for sure, um, uh, and it comes in various forms, uh, Plato's uh, Demiurge uh, uh, is one form of it, Aristotle's Unmoved Mover is another form of it, um, it is the, uh, uh, the argument based on, um, on uh, empirical uh, observation uh, of the universe uh, that uh, to every effect there is a cause. Uh, if you see an effect, there must be a cause for that uh, effect. And if you argue all of... That all of the effects all the way back you get at the ultimate cause uh, the unmoved mover in uh, Aristotle's uh, language um, what was there before the Big Bang uh, is a form of uh, implementing a cosmological argument you're asking uh, you, 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 there are these effects and there are causes and there are effects and there are causes. But, but if, the, if the effect is the Big Bang, uh, what was there before that? What caused the Big Bang? Um, and uh, if you ask that question you are in a sense employing a form of the cosmological uh, arguments and as you know from Stephen Hawking and others uh, uh, scientists have proved somewhat uh, resistant to the logical necessity of answering that uh, particular question. Uh, The teleological argument, uh, this is a deductive argument Uh, again Things reveal order and design. Uh, the most famous uh, form of this uh, is in the form of uh, William Paley, whose uh, mugshot is on page six, very handsome looking fellow uh, with a very fancy hat and a wig. Uh, William Paley, uh, 18th century, uh, he dis- supposing you're walking along the beach and uh, you're, on a, you're, a, you're a primitive and, uh, and you discover... Uh, something you've never seen before in in all of your life. You discover a pocket watch, uh, and uh, it's one of these pocket watches, perhaps with a glass back, and you look inside, and it reveals, uh, it reveals order, intricate order and design, and uh, and uh, you know nature doesn't produce a pocket watch. Um, that uh, the intricacy of the design argues for a designer. Um, Um, It was uh, an argument refuted by uh, David Hume um, in a universe of of an infinite number of particles, but an infinite existence. Every possibility may occur, um, uh, Hume argued. uh, It assumes in the argument that you reach an end point. But why should you reach an end point, was uh, Hume's answer. Maybe, maybe the universe is of infinite uh, duration, uh, and therefore there is no end point. Uh, uh, logically speaking, that was Hume's response to William Paley's uh, argument from uh, design. Uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, in the grand design Uh, argues that it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe but if the answer is God then the question has merely been deflected to that of uh, who created God uh, which is assumed in the argument he's actually using a very similar argument to David Hume's uh, argument Uh, and um, uh, there's a picture of of Stephen Hawking Uh, another uh, uh, another argument for the existence of God uh, is, is the historical argument. It's not a terribly uh, strong one, uh, that man has always believed in God in every society, in every culture. I mean, go to any society, study any culture, and there's always been some kind of theism. Uh, man has always been a religious being. Um, but uh, it's, uh, its Achilles' heel is that the, that the subjectivity uh, of that argument, uh, the fact that man... Uh, that man uh, subjectively uh, uh, feels as though uh, there is a God doesn't actually mean that there is one. Uh, Man is uh, more than capable of self-delusion, has been the response. Uh, And then, fifthly, uh, the moral arguments. C.S. Lewis, for example, gave this uh, uh, considerable weight and and support to some extent and uh, argued, um, argued that if the Uh, solar system was brought about by an accidental collision then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident and the whole evolution of man was an accident too and if so then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms and this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and astronomers as well as for anyone else but if their thoughts that is the materialism Uh, thoughts of materialists and astronomy are merely accidental byproducts. Why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. (laughs) Now, uh, Uh, He makes uh, makes the moral argument in uh, a case for Christianity. Uh, Think of a country where people were admired uh, for running away in battle. uh, Or where a man felt proud for double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. In, In other words, that man has a basic conscience. Uh, That in every society No matter what the society No matter matter how primitive that society may be uh, There is always uh, A a conscience There there is a revelation of a moral conscience And that argues uh, For uh, A a, a creator Who is is himself uh, Moral Now what do you make of these arguments uh, The so called uh, arguments Rational arguments for the existence of God And um, uh, if you turn the page, you'll see uh, in the left corner uh, and dressed in uh, in one color is uh, uh, our dear friend uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul uh, who is a classical apologist and has some time for these uh, arguments for the existence of God. Uh, and then in the other corner uh, is uh, Cornelius Van Til uh, who also has some time uh, for these arguments but in, uh, understood in a completely different way um, I don't think uh, for my part I don't think that any of these arguments are sufficient in themselves to prove the existence of God uh, I, I think, I think um, that all of these arguments in one form or another um, Assume uh, a theistic proposition within the argument, and, and are therefore inconclusive as arguments for the existence of God. And um, uh, uh, if, if you if you come to Scripture, for example, uh, I think Scripture um, begins with the assumption. That every man knows God and and really has has no time whatsoever uh, in doing a kind of pre-evangelism argument for the existence of uh, of God. Um, If you you turn to page 9, for example, uh, in the Bible's revelation of God... um, uh, if, if, if we think of natural theology, and if I define natural theology for, for a moment as as, uh, uh, as understood as God's um, of gaining uh, knowledge of God's existence through philosophical rationalistic arguments, um, Scripture begins in Genesis one one with "In the beginning, God." Uh, John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. Uh, even Paul in Athens, uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim uh, to you. And uh, I, I don't think that scripture itself uh, attempts to rationally argue um, the existence of God um, uh, the, these These arguments, I think, are fundamentally wanting uh, in in their basic structure now let 's move on models for thinking about uh, God. Uh, let me talk about the evangelical model for thinking about God. Um, how should we think about God? Uh, well, uh, you gather all the information uh, that the Bible has to say about God, and you uh, synthesize that information into a coherent uh, structure. Uh, that's been the evangelical way. That has been the reformed way of uh, getting at a doctrine of God. Uh, a basic controlling principle here is that there is no unchristlikeness in God. Um, Every attribute, every quality of God is also a quality of Christ. Or every quality, every attribute of Christ, in terms of the person of Christ, is also uh, an attribute of God. And various uh, people have said that. Uh, Karl Barth said that uh, in a slightly different way, and perhaps leading to a slightly different conclusion. Uh, but I've I've quoted uh, someone who otherwise I would not be citing. Uh, because he's, he he wouldn't be orthodox on so many things, but uh, this particular statement, I think, uh, is one worthy of pondering. Uh, God is Christ-like, and in Him there is no unchristlikeness likeness um, at all. Uh, and that's a that's a that's a very fundamentally important point when we're thinking about God. We must never make God to be unlike Jesus. Uh, uh, God, the God being angry, and jesus being uh, being uh, reconciling or some or something of that nature, uh, then uh, Roman Catholicism and orthodoxy orthodoxy meaning Eastern Orthodoxy or Russian orthodoxy, uh, in which the doctrine of God is uh, derived, employing uh, tradition uh, the tradition of the church fathers, uh, the tradition of the sayings and counsels of the church, and viewing uh, those sayings and, and um, pronouncements of the fathers and of the church as spirit given and having authority. Uh, and uh, a, a third way of, uh, of getting at the doctrine of God would be a rationalistic way Uh, Viewing the Bible as useful, uh, but fallible and capable of uh, error. Uh, And therefore, employing philosophy and uh, the philosophy of the current age uh, and whatever happens to be trendy in academia and in sociology. uh, And adjusting, therefore, the Bible uh, to uh, the the philosophies of the day. Uh, That would be like saying... A statement which begins, "God cannot possibly do such and such," right? That that statement is based on current philosophical, uh, sociological, scientific prejudices, uh, or, of course, the Bible shows primitive, unenlightened concepts and worldviews, or. Uh, The influence of the ancient Near Eastern culture radically distorts what the Bible says at this point. Or Jesus was a man of his day and the incarnation meant that he too implied primitive ways of thinking. Now all of those those are distortions. That's a rationalistic approach uh, to uh, understanding God. But all of those approaches are being employed in some form or another, uh, not just in the world at large, but in the churches uh, at large too. Uh, And the only sure and safe way is what I call the evangelical way, gather what scripture has to say about God and synthesize that material together. Now, um, uh, an important question to ask at this point as we, we begin, you can you can relax a little now that all of that stuff that we've just done is necessary stuff and was meaningful to some more than others, I'm sure. Uh, and some of you might have uh, been more taken with those uh, arguments for the existence of God uh, more than others. Uh, but, but now we want to begin properly down the road uh, of uh, the the doctrine of God as the Bible reveals itself. Uh, and the question that has been asked, and one uh, the answer of which... Uh, to, to which uh, affects the way we we go from here on is: Do we begin with the doctrine of God uh, in itself, or do we begin with the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, do we begin with with God, and uh, we say God is uh, holy, and God is righteous, and God is loving, and God is gracious, and God is omniscient, and God is omnipotent, and God is omnipresent, and so on? And we look at all of this, and then at the end we say, and yes. God is three. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Uh, The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but there's only one God. Three persons, one God. Uh, And some will begin with the Trinity, uh, right at the very beginning. So every attribute is considered from the doctrine of the Trinity. And others begin as yours truly will begin with the doctrine of God and, and lead up to the doctrine of the Trinity now why, why choose one over the other uh, and uh, there, are, there are various uh, theologians and, and they're probably more or less equally divided I mean, I mean Orthodox, Reformed friends of mine, theologians uh, who, who do it one way and others do it the other way um, I want to do it the way God reveals himself historically. Because the doctrine of the Trinity isn't revealed until the New Testament. That's not to say that God wasn't triune at the time of creation. That's not to say that God in Genesis isn't triune. But God in Genesis reveals himself as one. And God reveals himself as three in one in the pages of the New Testament. So there's a historical process to the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm going to keep that in mind as we look at the doctrine of God. So we we are following what I call um, the traditional order, and I'm sure you're completely surprised that I would do the traditional uh, order. However, having said that, I want you to note the The but statement uh, a third of the way two-thirds of the way down page 10 everything we attribute to God is equally to be attributed to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit although we won't come to a study of the doctrine of the Trinity until January February when we've had some Christmas pudding and Christmas cake and, and we've put on some pounds because we'll need it for the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> and then uh, another little statement which I've already made but I want to emphasize it one, once again. That the whole doctrine of God must be seen in the light of Christ. Now there is more to God than Christ. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. But it is important as a controlling mechanism, when we think about God, that Jesus' statement in John 14, um, 9, uh, and, and John 1, and I've not put in the reference. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And I'm going to say off the top of my head, that's John 1, 18. And correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, uh, And the, the Greek word there is the Greek word from which we get our English word, exegesis. The, Jesus exegetes the father. You want to know what the father is like if a child comes up to you and says, you know, what is God like? And the best answer that you can give is God is like Jesus. Because there is no un in God. God is like Jesus. Jesus exegetes God to us. Or whoever has seen me has seen uh, the Father uh, Jesus' words to Philip in uh, John fourteen nine. So our our God must be Christ-shaped and Christ-faced. Now, uh, we need to move quickly. I'm going to skip over uh, Quid, Qualis, and Chris, and you can Do some Latin uh, later tonight before you go to bed. But I'm going to go down to the names of God. Uh, General, how does God reveal himself? And he reveals himself on the pages of scripture by giving names. He gives himself a name. Uh, And the the most basic name that God gives himself is El. Um, uh, And he he gives his name as Elohim, for example. Uh, The basic Semitic root, El. And El in Hebrew means strong or power. So when God gives his name as El or joins El to perhaps another word, the basic thought is one of power and strength. So in Genesis 1-2, for example, he reveals his name as Elohim. He is... He is the creator God. He is the God of such strength, of such power, that he can bring the universe into being. Now, um, let's look at this a little more closely. Um, that, that L is sometimes used as a suffix in a place name. So, Bethel. Uh, we're on page 12. Bethel, house of God. Um, Penuel place of God. Now Bethel and Penuel tell us that God did something in these places. In Bethel God appeared on the top of a ladder to Jacob. In Penuel he appeared face to face with Jacob. This is the place where God did something and did something significant. Um, Patriarchal names. He's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Um, He's the God of our fathers. Um, God reveals himself as involved in the lives of human beings, of of significant human beings, of of particular human beings uh, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He makes a covenant with them. He makes promises and he makes threats and he exhorts. That's the kind. Who is God? God is, God is someone who came to Abraham and made a promise. God is someone who came to Isaac and renewed that promise. God is someone who came to Jacob and renewed that promise again. That's the kind. That's who he is. He's the God who makes promises. Um, it's predominantly, it predominantly appears in a plural form. Elohim. Uh, the suffix I am, "im" in Hebrew is a, is a plural. Uh, like uh, adding an "s" onto something makes an English word a plural. Uh, in Hebrew, "im" means it's plural. Now, God reveals Himself as plural, and you think Trinity. Of course, you 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 read Genesis and you say. Isn't it amazing that God's name would be plural? There's only one God, but his name is plural. So there it is, the doctrine of the Trinity. The only problem with that is that no one, no, no Semite, no Jew, no Muslim, who only has the Old Testament, has ever, 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 ever come to the conclusion that there is more than one who is the one God. No Jew, no, no Muslim, with only the Old Testament, has come to the conclusion of Trinity. Of plurality within the oneness of God. And, and therefore, I'm, I'm personally a, a, a little shy, a little re- reluctant of, of reading too much into the plural name of God. Because plurality in Hebrew can also mean the plurality of intensity. Intensity. Or the plurality of majesty. You know, like Queen Victoria would say, we are not amused when she was a widow and alone. But it was the plural of majesty. um, Or the plural of intensity. The one in whom um, godness is in concentrated form. Now... The specific name that God gives to Himself um, is Yahweh, or as we used to say, Jehovah, and as some of your translations may still say Jehovah. Um, this is a this is a name Uh, That the Jews never pronounced, uh, they were in fear of taking the Lord's name in vain and therefore they never pronounced this name. There's an added problem in that ancient Hebrew didn't have any vowels. Uh, they, it was, it was uh, you, you learned to read by custom and by tradition, and, and uh, when Hebrew uh, sort of began to be spoken no more, and uh, especially after the return from exile in uh, Babylon, um, there, there was a danger that they couldn 't read uh, the ancient scriptures anymore because no one really understood Hebrew anymore. Uh, and and a group of people known as the Masoretes uh, went back and added vowel points which are those dots and little squiggles that you see uh, in this case underneath and sometimes above the text Um, these are are added by the Masoretes they don't belong to the original uh, scriptures in any way but they were written written in uh, in order to help us pronounce these words and uh, uh, Yahweh uh, as you can see uh, in, in English in our English Bibles, it's always, it always appears with capital letters L-O-R-D. Uh, if it's L-O-R-D in lowercase, uh, it's Elohim, and if it's L-O-R-D in uppercase in the Old Testament, it's the divine name Yahweh. Now that divine name was given at the burning bush, uh, and along with it came that statement when Moses asked uh, Uh, God God was saying to Moses, go back to Egypt and so on. And Moses said, well, who who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am uh, that I am. Or possibly I will be that I will be, as the ESV footnote uh, seems to suggest in Exodus uh, 3.14. Now, that is a very, 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 very significant uh, revelation on God's part. God gives his special name. Uh, he gives his name to Moses. This is a name that's associated with the redemption of God's people from Egypt. This is a redemptive name. It's, it's almost like saying this is God's gospel name. Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, this is, uh, this is, this is the, the, the name that sounds in Hebrew like the verb to be. I am or, or I will be. I am that I am. I have, I have existence. God says to Moses, Moses says to God, What's your name? And God says, I am. You see, all the other gods have one fundamental problem they don't exist. <laughs> but I do, God says. I have being. I exist. Being not becoming. God is unchanging. I I am who I am. He, he never comes into being. I always am. He's always he he always has being. He always has had being. Inexhaustible being. You, you remember it was a burning bush that wasn't consumed. There was a there was a visual display of the meaning of this name. It burned and burned and burned, but it was never consumed. Um, God has inexhaustible being. L- look, at, uh, look at Isaiah forty twenty eight. Comfort my people, comfort ye, comfort ye my people with, with this thought. He does not faint or grow weary. How does God reveal Himself? He reveals Himself as the I am that I am. He always is. He always exists. He is never consumed. He is inexhaustible. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. That's our God. That's our God. Now our time has uh, gone and uh, we've, uh, we've been uh, s- s- just scratching the surface here. Uh, but uh, in the next uh, six or seven weeks, we're going to look at individual aspects of God uh, in terms of his uh, attributes and characteristics. Now let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we, we thank you. Thank you that you are a God who is, and you are always the same, and you do not grow weary. You are not consumed, you, you are inexhaustible. You come and you reveal yourself, you show yourself as a God who makes covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are a God who demonstrates that you are one who fellowships with your people and as we begin this journey now in these coming weeks as we as we begin to as we begin to look into what you are what you are like what you are essentially like we want to grow in that knowledge because the people who know their god shall shall do exploits we we pray that as a result of this uh, study that it might not just be a s- cerebral study but one in which we will grow in grace and grow more and more in love with you. So hear us, O Lord, grant your blessing, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.